This podcast is brought to you by Guy Finley, the best-selling author of a new book entitled Relationship Magic, Waking Up Together. Please listen to podcast number 685, where Guy and Greg discuss a host of special insights into how to develop and work on building great relationships with everyone in your life. This book carries the keys to identifying self-limiting behaviors which might be keeping you from realizing the kind of loving, compassionate relationships with others, including with yourself. I hope you'll listen to podcast number 685 with Guy Finley, the author of the new book, Relationship Magic. For more information, please visit www.relationshipmagicbook.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Judy, as I do, every time I come on these shows, I think my listeners must just get sick of me telling me how thankful I am for them. Uh, but that's always what I do when I start these podcasts because there'd be no point in doing them if there wasn't a great audience out there that responds and listens to me these and says, oh, I was listening to that podcast the other day. It was great. And today, joining me, now where are you joining me from, Judy? Fayetteville, Arkansas. Fayetteville, Arkansas is Judy Neal. Judy, I met easily 20 years ago through an organization called Spirit at Work. Um, I think we were in a conference in San Francisco, if I'm not mistaken. And we built a friendship and kind of tag teamed each other a few times in between and i've been following her for some time and she has actually for my listeners a new book out but we're going to talk about that book but i'm going to more importantly direct you to a book that she previously wrote because the reality is you're probably not going to want to buy this book because it's very expensive and it's called the handbook of personal and organizational transformation but the the work that's compiled with inside of judy I found fascinating after you sent it to me and requesting this interview today. And I think for my listeners, it's going to be the same, that they're going to really have some great insights here. So I'm going to tell them a little about you. After receiving her PhD in organizational behavior from Yale University, Judy worked eight years full-time in the industry, including five years as a manager for Honeywell. She's also served on board of directors of several professional community and academic organizations. She's the president of Neal and Associates, a consulting firm that focuses on personal and organizational transformation. Her clients include Pfizer, Unilever, Electric Boat, Hewlett Packard, General Electric, Rodell Press, uh, Rockport Company, and on and on and on. In 1992, as I said, she made spirituality in the workplace a central focus for her research and presentations and has uh, gained a reputation in the nation, uh, national media, uh, for stressing the importance of value of spirituality in the workplace. Uh, the center's website is www.spiritatwork.org, is known as the Information Center of Spirituality in the Workplace. Um, Judy, Judy has spoken at the United Nations, the World Business Academy, Rutgers University, California School of Professional Psychology, and on and on and on as well. She's been filmed by the BBC Television and PBS and has been quoted in Business Week, uh, Personal Journal, CEO Magazine, American Airways Magazine, New Age, and so on. 
And as she said, she's down there in a great part of the country. I hope you're experiencing wonderful weather today, beautiful skies. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a beautiful get... fall day and just gorgeous. Yeah. Uh huh. Well, I've only been there once, so I can't say that I experienced much of it, but I do hear from people that it's a wonderful place. You know, you you compiled this book, and I can hardly imagine how long it took you to pull not only all your information together, but then asking others to write uh, for it as well in this handbook that's used as a textbook, right? Yes, a textbook or as a reference for research. The publisher, they they call this a reference work. The publisher is Springer, and they're the, the top academic publisher. And so they see this as a reference work for researchers who are doing research on transformation or as possibly the chapters can be used in graduate school classrooms for students to look at certain specialties around transformation. So the whole book would not be used as a textbook. Like you said, it's expensive, around $600 for two volumes. It's, uh, I was shocked (laughs) when I got that the price. It's like, no, I don't. but it I is one my friends for to my listeners, <laughs> for those of you who can afford it, I would say get it, especially if you're doing research. There may be some of you out there that, that are doing it, and it's well worth it because all of the information is cited. Um, it's easy reference. There's an online version as well, correct, that they can get, um, yes. which then mm-hmm. takes them to all the URLs, which is as important as the other stuff as well because it gets very uh, deep with the information. And you mentioned in the preface of this 640-plus page handbook that you focused your career understanding the relationship between spirituality and work and then organizing and disseminating the information in a book you wrote in 2012, which is the one I'm actually going to put the link to on the blog, and it's called Creating Enlightened Organizations. Uh, Judy, in your estimation, what are the characteristics that help to transform an organization into being what would you would consider being enlightened? I think the very first one is an openness to change. Uh, and, and that's a level of consciousness that chooses possibility over fear. And, so, and that really begins with the leaders. They have to create an environment where there's an openness to exploring, to taking risks, to... Um, to following some sense of vision, some sense of calling. So I think those are real important um, aspects of it. One of the things I say in the very beginning of my chapter, which is an overview chapter for the handbook, um, is the bedrock is value or, or um, function is to have a belief that things can change and can get better. You must believe in possibility. If you don't believe, it's not going to happen. You'll sabotage yourself. Right. And you have a whole section of book about belief, and we'll get into that. Um, Are there any other things? I mean, you've studied this so extensively, and there's so many works out there from people from Ken Wilber, as we were talking, to Richard Barrett, to others that work in organizational transformation. Everybody seems to use... Um, maybe not a different technique, but maybe a different approach. But if you Mm -hmm. were to compile that, because this is kind of a dissemination of this information that 
you wrote about not only in this book, but I'm sure in creating enlightened organizations. What might those people in middle and upper management who are listening to this podcast go, okay, these are the things I need to do? Well, I think one of the things, particularly that Ken Wilber and, and Richard Barrett have offered us and, and others have too, is some kind of developmental model. It's like a map of how transformation happens. And really, it's a model of consciousness, of, of awareness, of uh, going beyond the self. Um, so that, that's um, a really big part of transformation is getting out of the ego and into a commitment to something greater than oneself. And that's for individuals, that's for teams, and that's for organizations. So to have a model like Barrett's or Wilbur's or others is, I think it's a very helpful part of that um, for middle managers and upper managers. And when I look at organizations that have had really successful transformation, and just about every case, the CEO or whoever's the, the operational leader um, has had his or her own transformational experience, uh, a waking up to something that they say, I need to bring that into my company. That, and then they figure out how to do it after that. But this seeing the world in some kind of expanded way seems so important for that. And my, my favorite story of that is Ray Anderson, who was, um, I can't remember why. Wasn't, but he he was the, at, wasn't he the carpet guy? Yeah, interface carpet. Yeah, and, yeah, I remember that from my days with Larry Wilson. Yeah, <laughs> He used to yeah. use the, the, the Ray Anderson story, which was, yeah, tell our listeners, because that's a great one. You know, he was, you know, he made carpets that were sold to um, big corporations and libraries and universities and industrial carpet. And he was at a landfill and saw the carpet in the landfill. And at the same time, he was reading um, Paul Hawken book on the ecology of commerce. Mm -hmm. And it just shocked him so much to see the product that he made affecting the planet, that it was not recyclable, that it was filling the landfill. And he went back to his leadership team and said, we've got to find a new way of doing business that's good for the planet. And so they ended up leasing carpet instead of selling it. And then when the lease is up for the carpet, they take the carpet back and they refurbish it. And it turns out that's a more effective business model. It was very profitable and good for the planet. But it was that seeing the carpet in the landfill was that moment of transformation for him, a wake-up call. And that seems to be very consistent um, among the leaders. But I guess to kind of back up, you have to be open to having those kinds of experiences. You have to care about something as a leader to even be willing to see that there's other possibilities. And that yeah, gets back and to the, the whole fear thing. If you're just afraid and you're just trying to protect everything you've got, you will not have transformation. Most definitely. And it, it, I, I think the fact that you're mentioning that the CEO or some of the upper management have gone through their own personal transformations. So you've spent much of your career in bringing spirit to work. And what is, would you define for our listeners, is workplace spirituality? You mention it 
but on the the facet of what we call larger transformation, you say, what are the mm -hmm. ele other elements associated with workplace transformation? You first said, hey, uh, Ray Anderson had this epiphany while he was at the landfill. So mm -hmm. that then shifted his, uh, he, he got an idea, let's lease the carpet. So what other elements are associated with uh, a whole culture changing and becoming more spiritual. I think we've always said, you know, when you come to work, you you don't leave spirit at home, right? Um, and I, <laughs> yeah, and, and you try I to. That, yeah, yeah, people, well, they maybe try to, or the employers that lead from fear want you to do that. Um, mm -hmm. So what does that culture look like? Um, well, first you're saying, how do, how do you get to that culture or... Yeah, well, how let's do you get to that culture? Yeah, mm -hmm. go ahead. You know, I, can, ahead. I think maybe you're right. Let's talk about what it looks like because that plants the seeds for how you get there. If you have a vision of where you're going. Um, so I like to think about it in terms of, first of all, the individual people in the organization. What are they like in a workplace spirituality organization? Um, so they employees at all levels feel that they can be authentic. They are able to speak their truth and be themselves. They're honored for their diversity, whether that's um, a racial or gender diversity or an age diversity or a functional diversity or a religious or spiritual diversity. All of that is seen as valuable resources for the company and their mission. Um, and people are not um, there. How, how what am I trying to say? I remember um, going into one company, Digital Equipment Corporation, DEC, and when they hired people, they said, we do not hire you to a job description. We hire you as a human being. And once you're here, you go figure out how your talents and skills can fit into the company. I think Polartech does something very similar. So this idea of really tapping into the uniqueness of the human being and um, creating an environment where people can express their spirituality and maybe even have spiritual experiences. That, so there may be rituals, there may be a sense of sacred space. Um, those are some of, the, some of the examples. And then the next level is the teams to be able to uh, in, a, in a corporation or an organization that really supports workplace spirituality, they'll have very spirited teams, teams with a sense of passion and mission, a real sense of bondedness. They love each other. Then out of that love and trust, there's all kinds of creativity and inspiration that can happen. Um, they're not afraid of conflict because they know it's not going to destroy the their working relationships, they see conflict as, as a creative source for getting mm -hmm. through to, to bigger issues. Breakthroughs, uh, yeah, breakthroughs occur. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. And, and there, there are going to be some kind of spiritual practices, so there may be silence before meetings or retreats or um, some kind of different approach that allows them to get in touch with whatever they describe as higher, 
higher consciousness or higher being. Some people talk about God or universal consciousness. But they, they actually tap into that for guidance. And that's for, true for individuals. It's also true for teams. And then at the organizational level, um, there are, like you've mentioned, Richard Barrett and his, his values audit and his corp tools are an example of some specific approaches to transforming organizations. But they start with people identifying what are their values, what are the company's values, and what are the desired values of the company. And they look at this values gap and then begin to make a yeah. plan of how, how do we live these values. And what I love about Barrett's work is he's tied it into levels of consciousness, corporate consciousness. So there can be values around survival at the lower level. And without paying attention to that, the company can't last. So that's an important value to have is to survive, just like it is for us as human beings. But when survival needs are taken care of, there can be higher order needs of um, being able to connect to others. And then higher than that is a sense of contribution to the world. And then higher than that, which we don't find in corporations much, is a sense of global one, universal oneness. And then I haven't seen examples of that in corporations, certainly in individuals, but not in corporations. But so having the, at the corporate level, having that map of where are we, where's the gap, then you can begin to use different processes to figure out where we're going to go. And, and how, to actually, how to actually yeah. kind of, uh, how do you want to okay, jump the chasm or shorten the gap? Uh, yeah. Obviously, they're doing that. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you ask scholars and practitioners to write into the handbook, and you ask them to consider some very thought-provoking questions. And... And I'd like to ask you a few of those questions um, for the interview. And one <laughs> of them is, the spot. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I picked out, you had many, but I picked out three. This podcast is brought to you by Jeffrey Gittimer, the author of a new book entitled Truthful Living. Please listen to podcast number 688, where Greg and Jeffrey discuss the 23 lessons that he writes about from the recently discovered works of Napoleon Hill that are over 100 years old. These lessons such as, success is up to you, and finish what you start, are all from the original writing for Napoleon Hill with commentary by Jeffrey. If you want to read a book that will certainly help you change the course of your life, pick up a copy of Truthful Living by Jeffrey Gittimer, and listen to Greg's engaging interview with Jeffrey on podcast number 688. If you want more information about Jeffrey and Truthful Living, please visit www.gitomer.com or visit the Napoleon Hill Foundation website at www.naphill.org. Thanks for listening. And the okay. first one is, what is the difference between change and transformation? Mm -hmm. um, the second one is, why is human change so difficult? And mm -hmm. the third one is, what is the role of the human consciousness and spirituality in transformation? Okay. And you're welcome to kind of weave through those however you like. But I thought those mm -hmm. three in particular were good thought-provoking questions and something that I, especially what's the difference between change and transformation and why is human change so difficult? Okay. And, and I hope you'll comment on these too, because it'd be great to have a dialogue about that. 
the the way that I think about change and transformation comes from metaphor that I heard from a organizational change colleague. And the metaphor is that change is like water. Water can change states, and Ken Wilber talks about state changes also. Water can change states, so it can go um, to a vapor and be steam, or it can go to be a solid and be ice, but it can change back. So change is a state, and it's not um, permanent. Transformation, the metaphor, the, the, I can't tell you how many people use the metaphor of the butterfly in my chapters, but it's because it's such a good one of the caterpillar going into the chrysalis and then emerging as a butterfly. It cannot go back to being a caterpillar. It has evolved to a higher state and, and it's, it can't go back. So that's the transformation. Um, it's, oh, there was an old song in World War II. It's like, um, you can't keep them on the farm once they've seen Paris. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. And, yeah. And, and, you know, and it really rang true for me when I worked at Honeywell. You, know, you mentioned I worked in corporate world for eight years. And we did an organizational transformation process at a circuit board plant in Arizona. And the, when people got empowered and were able to contribute to making decisions and saw measurable differences in their work and saw managers respecting and responding and providing what was needed and productivity went through the roof and quality went through the roof. Everything was really extraordinarily successful. When people saw that, no matter where they went or whatever they did in their lives after that, you could not put the genie back in the bottle. They have, those people yeah. have been transformed and they'll be different in any system they go into. And that was just so profound and exciting to me to see. I so would concur with, concur with you on both of those. I think that, mm-hmm. you know, your metaphor about uh, change, the difference between change and transformation, uh, change is not permanent. It's always moving. And transformation has this degree of permanent. It's just like um, somebody used used that metaphor. Had somebody used the metaphor on truth spelled with a small t and a big t. Um, you know, when sp- people you you have a belief or you have a knowing, right? Uh, so yeah. knowing might be the transformation, and a belief is changeable. Uh, yeah, beliefs yeah. do change, right? So that right. that might that might be a good metaphor for our listeners as well. So mm-hmm. why is human change so difficult? <laughs> um, I think it's because we have amygdalas. <laughs> <laughs> you know that lizard part of our brain, and it goes back to that that survival and 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 instinctual sense of fear when things change. That it's just it's built into our systems. And um, a book I read once that was very helpful to me is, was called "One Small Change Can Change Your uh, One Small Step Can Change Your Life." And it talked about how if you're trying to let's say you want to go on a diet, 
Well, as soon as you say that, your amygdala goes, no, no, I have to give up chocolate. No, I can't do that. (laughs) And it just freaks out and sabotages you. And so we go into fear when we think something's going to change. And we, our consciousness, especially if it's change imposed from the outside. But it's even what happens with change we choose that we can get really afraid because we get out of our comfort zone. So that happens to us individually and it happens collectively. I, I did some work with Pfizer when they were doing a merger and the people were so afraid of layoffs and there was going to be layoffs and we did some change management work with them uh, using William Bridges change model which is based on the the grief work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross when Mm -hmm. there's change we're always going to lose something and so there's a grieving process and that's just a part of being human and if um, if an organization does not pay attention to the emotional side of people's response to change, the things will backfire. But if yeah. they honor that there are emotional reactions and create the space for listening to that and working with that, and I found as I worked with the Pfizer employees that after they explored other changes that they had managed well and looked at what their resilience was around managing change, then they began to see the possibilities. Even if they might be laid off, they began to see possibilities for their lives and they stopped being afraid and started to get proactive about whatever it was they needed to do next. It makes sense. I I mean, you know, resiliency is kind of the... Uh, how to in the workplace today resiliency is being taught through mindfulness and meditation and trying mm-hmm. to help people navigate through difficult circumstances and i think once you know that you can get through something you know this particular change you're focused with may not be that challenging um i remember reading a book called immunity to change you may remember that one um Say it, it was again. put out by immunity to change oh immunity yes yes Yeah, Uh or immune to change, whatever it was. It was an MIT book. But more importantly, it was citing studies about people that would have a heart attack and the percentage of people that really so resisted, it was such a small percentage, to change their diet and their exercise program. So they went back to the old habit patterns, as you were talking about, because it was that comfort. It was that amygdala that was saying, hey, I, I can't change. So it was only about 7% of the actual heart attack patients that actually took the advice of the doctor and actually made significant changes. So that means wow. 93% um, of these people went back to all the old patterns, regardless of the fact that they might lose their life. Um, and the researchers obviously found that quite fascinating. So you can see how difficult change could actually be. Uh-huh. Um, so that is. Um, but uh, just to say on the other side of that, um, there's the whole, um, oh, I'm losing the term, but there, there's a oh, critical mass that in right. a systems change process, a critical mass of somewhere between 10 and 15% of people who buy into the change is significant enough 
to resonate throughout the organization. So yes, I think that's like the bell curve, right? You're trying to right, see, you're yeah. saying, Hey, how do I get this organization to move? And I think you're right. It doesn't take a big percentage to get the momentum, but you need to get there to make that happen. Now I want to um, move through a few more questions because I have so many and it's a little time. Um, you know, your I, handbook I just, can is, I share one, one more thing? Um, sure. there, there's one approach that a utility company I worked with took and um, they were going through deregulation and they had people who'd been there for 30 years who knew how it ought to be. And so a lot of resistance to deregulation and being more entrepreneurial. And the company identified who were the radicals and rebels and people that were might even be thought of as troublemakers because they asked uncomfortable questions. And they, I brought these rebels together into a group and said, we respect you and honor you. You have a voice for change. You may be complaining a lot. You may have see what's wrong with the organization, but we think you see something that we're not paying attention to. We want to empower you and bring you together and interact with you. And those people became the champions of change. Yeah, it's it it definitely requires some champions. No no yeah. doubt. No matter where mm-hmm. you are in the organization, somebody has to pick up the baton and start to run with it. Uh, and I think finding those people, those people are like the the illuminated ones, the bright stars in the group. Yes, um, yes. And you can find them because they do want to make a difference. And there's actually probably more of them there than you think. And um, <laughs> as I had mentioned to you, I am going to invite you back for a second podcast, but I know that sometimes my uh, listeners attention span for these podcasts run about 30 minutes. So we're going to do a second one with Judy, but I do have one last question here to kind of round out this first segment um, regarding your handbook. So let's talk about the importance of belief. You mentioned it before uh, when we started in the transformation process, you stated in a book that the first step is the belief that transformation is possible, whether individual team or organization or global. Mm-hmm. How do our beliefs functionally impact our experience and what can we do about shifting them? Ah, what a powerful question. Um, I think that beliefs affect what we see and what we pay attention to and how we interpret that. And so if we believe that management doesn't care about us and that this company is just uh, self-centered and and not you know there for a good purpose we'll look for evidence of that we'll look to honor you know we'll look to to reinforce our beliefs and then we'll complain about that and we'll stick our heels in and we'll um, resist change if we believe that everyone is trying to make a difference and we believe that our leaders have a real sense of vision and purpose and mission, then we're going to look for actions that reinforce those beliefs and will our actions will support them. So 
it depends on on whether you I mean it's a basic belief like we go back in management theory to theory X and theory Y do you believe people are basically good or do you believe that people are basically out for themselves and don't care about anybody else if you have a basic belief that people are good you're going to believe that the company is good that leadership is good the mission's good and you'll act to support that it'll bring out the best and goodness in you so uh, belief is just essential what would you say well, about that i you know i i i wrote about it in my book uh called hacking the gap a journey from intuition to innovation and beyond and i do address the 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 subject of beliefs and i'll go back to what i said just a few minutes ago um I use the analogy in my book of when Al Gore came out about global warming and how many people in the world um, actually had a belief that there was no global warming. Now we still have people like the current administration uh, that are rebuting the fact that, Hey, there is global warming. Yes. All the society and I should say the scientists have proven it. So look, there, there was a belief pre-Al Gore. Ah, just keep going on. Al Gore comes out, exposes this, and shifts a lot of people and creates awareness. So I think the awareness uh, action cycle is a key factor. The greater mm-hmm. the level of awareness, the greater the ability to change that belief. Um, the less awareness you have, the more challenged you're going to be in shifting the belief. So, you know, the awareness level, the high levels of awareness and consciousness beget changes in belief, um, which they, I ultimately think turn into truths for people, uh, truths and or knowings. Um, mm-hmm. And from a spiritual standpoint, we can stand on a ground. I mean, because your book is about the relationship between spirituality and work. To me, there's no difference. Um, we're, our work is our spiritual work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, when you talk about standing for something or standing against something, I'd rather stand for something and be on the positive side, carrying that particular knowing. And if you want to call mm-hmm. it a belief, call it a belief than I would <laughs> be standing against something. Um, and I think that, you know, Current commentary aside here about our divisiveness in the, you know, and our Republicans and Democrats and the bickering and fighting that's going on. Um, I'd rather see people out there standing for something. Amen. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's a belief, right? We've, we've all got yeah. beliefs about the current administration. We've got beliefs about a lot of things that we're carrying around. Question is, are they changeable? Um, I know it's hard a lot of times, but when you take a Buddhist approach to this, you should be holding all these people in compassion. I know it's challenging mm-hmm. for people out there listening <laughs> to say, hey, mm-hmm. I'm going to hold this particular administration in the arms of compassion. But it, if you don't, you just you agitate that challenge with inside yourself. Yeah. Um, and I think well, that's, and- um, that's my commentary. How's that? Thank you. That's powerful. And, and there is a lot of social science that, that supports what you're saying in, around social change and political change is that 
when leaders take a stand for a better world in some way, that's more sustainable and leads to longer-term stability and leadership. If they take a stand against something and they're just trying to block change, uh, a system can die from that. It's just, it's not sustainable. It, it um, won't last. And new leadership will eventually come in with a larger vision that's for something. And it has to be for something that's good for everybody, not just for some. Agreed. I think there's got to be a consciousness and a uh, of a collective or a community or society or globally that we're trying to bring together. Um, and, you know, it sounds real spiritual, but, you know, in harmony um, with yeah. peace um, mm-hmm. versus this conflict. Um, I go back to the day, which I'm sure you remember, of Bucky Fuller. And yeah. Bucky used to say, if we put as much money, if we put less money in weaponry and more money in livingry, um, those were kind of his weird little terms. But, you know, when you think about all the money that we do put into weaponry um, mm-hmm. and all the harm that it's caused, the divisiveness, um, religion's the same way. You know, it's uh, the divisiveness that can occur because of the beliefs. My belief's right. better than yours, so you better follow me. Um, so these are things that I think are doing uh, more harm uh, yes. to our yeah. world, and they are being broken down. Um, so that's a good thing. That's a really yeah, good thing. We're becoming more aware of what causes divisiveness, and people long for unity and harmony. One of uh, my mentors told me once that um, when we were doing workplace spirituality conferences and, and some work with leaders, he said, when you ask people about beliefs, you ask them to talk about what they believe, you get into divisiveness and arguing. If you ask them what they do to support their spirituality, you find oneness. That's really a great way for us to kind of sum up this first half of two interviews we're going to do with Judy Neal. We've been on with uh, Judy Neal. We've been talking about her handbook of personal and organizational transformation. We will put a link uh, to this um, place where you can get this book. Um, not everybody out there is going to buy it just because of the cost. Like she said at the beginning, it's more of a research book. But I think more importantly, this book that Judy wrote in 2012 called Creating Enlightened Organizations would be something people would be interested in, and we certainly will put links to that. And again, this is part one of a two-part interview with Judy Judy, thanks for being on with us this morning, spending a few minutes with my listeners, uh, talking about some very important topics and actually how to navigate through um, from change to transformation and not only doing it individually, but doing it as an organization. Thanks for being on Inside Personal Growth. Thank you so much, Greg. It's been a real delight to be with you and with your audience. This podcast is brought to you by Dr. Kenneth R. Peltier, the author of a new book entitled Change Your Genes, Change Your Life. Please listen to podcast number 687.
to hear Greg's interview with Dr. Pelletier about the new science of epigenetics, which studies the human epigenome. Learn how our lifestyle choices and life conditions play a large part in how our epigenome functions and in turn determines the function of our underlying genome. What we eat and drink and breathe, as well as our stress levels, use of pharmaceuticals, and our psychological and physical environment are as important as our family ancestry in determining our propensity toward a certain disease as well as our health and longevity. Please listen to podcast number 687 if you want to learn how you can affect your genes toward improved health and longevity. If you want to learn more about Dr. Pelletier's new book, Change Your Genes, Change Your Life, please visit www.drpelletier.com. And thanks for listening.